Welcome back to another podcast episode, and this week is another Fantasy Fishing Edge episode. This week, we're talking with Pete Robbins, uh, one of the senior writers with Bassmaster.com, one of the other fantasy fishing pundits. Uh, we talk all about the Southern Swing. We get into Gunnersville picks and tight weights and tiebreakers, uh, as well as talk about some of Pete's endeavors uh, and some of the things he does with uh, half past first cast. So make sure you check that out. Uh, there's going to be a link in the description of the podcast and of the video. Hope you enjoyed the episode. And as always, here to help you catch more bass and suck less. All right. We are live, Pete. Uh, let's just have a guess. Yeah, great. So we'll just uh, kind of let people trickle in here. There's usually a little delay letting people get in. The notifications roll out. Oh, yeah, great. Uh, it's Wednesday night. I know there's some other shows out there, but we're going to be the only ones talking fantasy fishing tonight, Pete. So. I'm excited about it. I appreciate you having me on tonight. Yeah, this is awesome. Uh, and where, where you live down in Virginia? I'm in Virginia, just about 20 miles outside of Washington, D.C. The Potomac is my home body of water. Okay, cool. Very cool. So, and, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from guys. Uh, I was. Yo. Let us know pretty quick if there's any issues, and then we can get those straightened out before we get too far down the path. So, um, so yeah, so Pete is uh, trickle trickle. What's up, Tom? Good to see you tonight. Um, so Pete, you're uh, very involved in bass fishing and writing and media, and have been so for quite a long time. So, I, I feel like the people, a lot of people in the industry, know who Pete Robbins is, but I don't know that the casual fan knows a lot about they probably seen a lot of your work and a lot of things that you've been involved with but they maybe don't put a name with the face so maybe just give us a little uh a little about pete robbins sure i mean i'll give you sort of the ten thousand foot overview is i'm a guy who's i have a full-time job a 45 hour a week job i fished local tournaments federation tournaments for a lot of years when i was 25 and working a full-time job i thought i was going to be kevin van dam by the time i was 27, I knew I was not going to be Kevin Van Dam. And by the time I was in my early 40s, I was like, man, I really don't feel like going to another Saturday morning tournament in the rain to try to catch eight pounds of fish. I just, I, I kind of lost my passion for that, but I never lost the passion for the sport. And that time kind of dovetailed really nicely with as my writing career picked up, as I got to do more work for Yamamoto and Bass and people like that and had the opportunity to do some amazing things. I spent a lot of time in Mexico and Brazil and Alaska because of this. So, there are times I miss the tournament stuff, but I feel like I sort of get my fix of that by writing about fantasy fishing and writing about the tours and, and knowing enough of the guys out there that when I want to go to a really great body of water, I can call someone up and say, hey, let's go fishing at Rayburn or Gunnersville or Leech Lake or someplace like that. Nice. And do you do many like the, the writers conferences, media events? Is that not something you do? I go to one or two a year. Um, I'm kind of cautious about them. Some of them are great if they have one at a gross savant or you know, the upper Mississippi, someplace where you're going to get to fish, I go. Sure. place where you're going to be shuffled around from boat to boat and not get to fish or go someplace where the fishing isn't good. I don't really, I don't want to do that. But right. for me, those writers conferences are really about going places and getting to spend time with the guys and catching some fish and having a good time. So when they're driving for 22 hours at night 
they'll decide that they can call Pete up with an article idea and I can roll with it at that point. Yeah, awesome. So Andrew Alexander knows who you are, Pete. He says you're ingrained in the fishing industry. Well, I appreciate yeah. that, Andrew. It's, are you sure you're not my mom? Because I don't know that anyone else knows who I am. I feel like, you know what's cool? When I go to the Classic and I used to be in the boat with Overstreet and like you're watching a Randall Tharp or a Randy Howell or a Gerald Swindle and a fan boat comes up to get close and they turn and they start talking to Overstreet instead of watching the the angler actually doing their thing in the middle of the Classic. I'm like, man, he's a celebrity. Like no one knows who the guy behind the pen is. But the, the bearded guy with the camera, that's why I got this big beard going. Yeah. The bearded guy with the camera, he's a superstar. I mean, it, it's cool. I, I appreciate everything the sport has done for me. And the fact that people care even slightly about what I have to say about the sport is a thrill to me. It's, it's the biggest thrill in my life, honestly. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And that's kind of why I started doing the YouTube thing and, and fancy blogs and writing articles and doing the videos is just because – I'm already a fan and it's why not, you know, it's just another way to get involved and, 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 and interact with the sport. It's you said, so it sounds like you, you, uh, you fish some of the, the, you know, the Federation, which is now the Bass Nation back in the day. So that gives you a true appreciation of what it takes to get to the level that you write for, which I think helps. Oh yeah. Um, you know, both from a fishing perspective and from a competition perspective, like, I know how good those guys are. I know how good there are guys at the federation level fishing, all Mueller's of the world, the Ikes of the world, all of that. And like to get out there and you hear it all the time, guys at, at the gas station. If I only could afford that $10,000 worth of electronics, I'd be right there with Van Dam. I'd be right there with Scott Canterbury. And that's a load of crap. I can tell you right now. Like, I, I mean, my favorite story about that is I was at St. Clair two years ago. I think it was maybe three years ago. We were musky fishing. And we had gone casting for two days and we were going to go trolling the third day on like a 38 foot boat. And it was the first day of elite series practice. And we were going out on the trolling boat and the captain called us. He's like, it's too rough to go out today on our, my big boat. And I guarantee you that every elite pro went out that day and practiced. Like you have to be mad at them all the time. And that's, that's what's amazing about a guy like Rick Clunn, who's in his seventies, sure. still wants to be out there all the time. Like you have, you have to want it more than anything. That's all I can say about that. Absolutely. Yeah. I kind of look forward to it. Like I get mad at him for a little bit of time and, uh, and my kids are 10 and 12. So I'm thinking in five, six years, I'll start getting mad at him full time again or a little, a little bit more mad at him again. So, um, so do you still, tr do you travel much to the events or do you mostly cover them remote or? Um, I go to the classic every year. Like I could not imagine missing the classic. The last one I missed was 2007. And the last one before that was, 2003, the one that Ike won. Um, and I try to go to a few events. If they have an elite on the Potomac or an sure. open on James, I'll go cover that. I'm going to Santee in a couple of weeks to cover that for bass. Um, and that's the lake I've never fished. It's one of those. I've been to most of the, the Rayburns and Cal Deltas and all those storied lakes, but I don't know why I've never been to Santee. And it's, it's only about eight hours from home. So I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, that's cool. And then we'll definitely start, we'll talk a little more about the Southern Swing in a little bit. So. Absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. So glad to have you, Pete. We've uh, we've been writing. Uh, I've been reading your article. I mean, I've always read your fantasy articles. I've read some of your stuff. And obviously, we're kind of writing, I don't know, competitive or complimentary pieces lately this the last two seasons for fantasy fishing. Um, and so it's cool to get. So we've had we've had Koi on, we've had Bonnie on, and we're kind of completing the circle tonight and having you talk about the southern the southern swing. So, um, so 
Yeah, before we get to the Southern Swing, what have you what have you thought about this 2020 Elite Series with just the way 2020 has been? Like, what are your kind of high level thoughts of like with the pandemic and the COVID and the rescheduling? And uh, I mean, just I mean, what, what do you think? Like, what's any big takeaways? I mean, the first takeaway is that I think Bass has done a great job. You know, they've gotten into a really terrible situation where you're concerned about everyone's health, you're concerned about contracts you have, and you're concerned about people making a living. And they found a way to make it work. And that's sort of that's sort of the the boring view of it, the stuffy view of it, if you will. Right. I mean, to me, the exciting thing is we're going to have four more tournaments at a time when we're normally done. Like, you know, normally you, you go to that northern swing and you go to St. Clair or someplace like that, and the season is over. And now we're going to four southern impoundments at a time when they normally don't have tournaments and when they certainly don't have tournaments in the south. And I, I think there are going to be certain advantages for some guys, but it's kind of a wild west in that sense that people we're, we're dealing with the unknown and not the same old, same old schedule. I know I personally hate it when you wait months and months for a tour level schedule to come out. And it's exactly the same as last year's schedule. And for the first time we have something really, really different. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I think there's a lot to gain for bass and for the sport in general to be going late because I feel like college football and NFL have lost a little bit this year. I don't like me personally as a Vikings fan without the preseason and the buildup and like, it doesn't feel like it's here. I haven't even watched either one of the games. I've been out fishing. Like, I just feel like it's a great opportunity for bass to, to gain more game share. I mean, we've already had a good opportunity with a bunch of the ESPN two coverage and there might be a little more of that. Uh, but I think it's just, a great time. Hopefully we make the most of it, you know, whether it's, you know, Bass, FLW, the new league, like uh, hopefully this is just uh, a, a big growth period for the sport. So I hope so. I mean, fortunately, despite COVID, it seems that the sport hasn't taken a hit financially. I'm sure certain individuals have. And, and I just hope, you know, first of all, I hope everyone stays healthy. But on top of that, I hope that we keep going the way we're going right now because things feel pretty good and like we're in general unaffected by it even if we don't have weigh-in crowds. Um, you know, that may change this offseason when you see guys not getting their sponsorships, and that could determine where people end up. But one, one of the things that amazes me is we're going to have all sorts of late-in-the-year jockeying. Guys aren't going to know which tour they're fishing until December, potentially. And then they're going to have to sign their contracts, choose a tour, possibly put down deposits before then. And there's going to be a lot of scrambling by a lot of guys. And you see it, we have the Hartwell Open going on right now. Scott Martin looks like he has a pretty good chance of qualifying for the elites, but there are other guys who may be without a tour next year. Yeah. I think this is poised to be one of the most interesting off seasons in a while. Like obviously the year the BPT split off was really interesting, but kind of in a really negative way. <laughs> I yeah. think it has a, the, the potential to be a very interesting dynamic uh, without that kind of negative connotation this year. So. Do you think Bass makes lemonade out of the lemons and changes the schedule to stretch it out in the future uh, and flip-flop? I guess a problem to me, I'll let you kind of comment. It kind of depends on how the numbers look. Um, and a lot of that also is dictated by the sponsors, I think, and their dollars. So if they, if the sponsors feel like they're benefiting from it and the numbers are up, then maybe. But I don't think it's going to be – I don't think they're going to carbon copy this. I think – Next year will look closer to a traditional with maybe a little tweaking. And if it keeps working, they'll maybe tweak, tweak, tweak. Uh, what are your thoughts? I, I think that's right. I mean, I've always wanted a schedule of 11 or 12 tournaments, one a month. 
and as geographically as diverse as they can be. And I just don't think that's feasible, at least from the angler's perspective. They don't want to have to go to the Cal Delta and then come to Table Rock and then go to Champlain and then go back to Oklahoma. They like to sort of cluster them up, but there's no reason we couldn't have clusters in the fall and the summer and even the winter. And I'd, I'd love to see a true wintertime tournament. Remember those old tournaments of guys at Grand Lake throwing a buzz bait in 17 degree temperatures? Those like old snowsuits and yeah. Yeah, an old snowsuit where if you fell in, you were drowned in like 32 seconds because the thing filled with water. Yeah. I, I, would, I would love the schedule as spread out and I would love all new waters every, every year. I, I know that's a pipe dream, but if it could happen even cl something close to that would be amazing. Yeah, I think even fishing some of the same lakes at different times almost has the same effect as new waters, right? Like. Santa Cooper this fall is going to look a lot different than a March or April Santa Cooper tournament of the past. I think that's right. You, you think back to that tournament that Preston Clark won, and I think four or five guys had 100 pounds. It's mm -hmm. not going to look like that. There might be someone who catches 100 pounds, but there are going to be a lot of guys who catch six or eight pounds a day. You know, And, and I think the same will happen at Fork. You'll have some, a couple guys with really big weights and a couple guys who really struggle and a bunch of people spread out between them. I, I don't think it's going to be a springtime slugfest. Yeah, I think, and there's going to be guys that are like the high to the high to the low to the low in small tournaments might be bigger than ever. Like, you're probably going to see some zeros. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, I don't want to see that, but like these small tournaments, especially on some of these lakes that have 15 inch minimums and stuff like that, can be very difficult in the fall. So, I think that's right. And you're going to, it's going to be a feast or famine deal for certain people. And you really don't want to be on that famine side. You, you look down the standings and there are a lot of guys for various reasons in precarious positions. And, you know, you screw the pooch at Santee or you do it at the last minute at Fork and your whole season is down the drain. It's not like you can really salvage points the same way maybe you could at Gunnersville in May or April or March. Yeah, I think the live crew is going to earn their keep a little bit because it's not going to be like Champlain or St. Clair where it's just like there's going to be lulls. <laughs> so... Uh, so I will tell you that's a brutal thing. Like yeah. you know, when they talk about anglers on their milk run, and how you can sort of get off your beat and you're going on the wrong rotation. You can do that as a photographer or a blogger too. I mean, sure. you you hear that Seth is catching them up the lake, and you run up there, and then suddenly he his bite completely dies, and someone's whacking them down the lake, and you sort of get off of that rotation, and it sucks. I I give those guys a lot of credit, even Ronnie Moore who helps, you know, with the whole bass track that no, I'm not giving Ronnie more any credit. Ronnie, if you're listening, I'm giving you credit for once, like of keeping on top of those guys. It's pretty amazing when they send you a pin to your phone and they're like, that's where that guy is. He's behind this stump and you can find him there and you zip over and churn up the guy sitting there. Sure. Cool. Yes. Yeah, so Andrew Alger said he went to the Hartwell open way and he said, good, good vibes, fans, anglers. It's not like it was a good time. They always have a great crowd there at Green Pond at Hartwell. That's a, a really yeah. great facility, and that's a great fishing community. Yeah. So yeah, it's like yeah. I mean, the opens and the elites are both fishing, and they're like the only. I guess you do have some Toyota Series events and things like that, but for the most part, it's like the only game in town for fishing right now. So, uh, Doug says, not sure if the English. I think a lot of the English do want to fish in the fall. Uh, we'll see after this year. I agree that Christie's on track to potentially make the elite. Um, I don't know Jason really well. You know, I've interviewed him and I've certainly followed him at Grand Lake on classic days, but I, I know he's tight with Edwin and Ed, Edwin is obviously not making a move to come over to Bass. I assume that's Jason's goal. I haven't spoken to him about it, but yeah, everyone has their own careers to deal with, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, Edwin's an owner in BPT. Right. Right. 
and, and so are you know a lot of the and i don't know what the situation with like uh legend exemptions will be in the future but a lot of guys that would be eligible for legend exemptions are owners in mlf so you know they Bam, evers uh boy eat all those guys are owners, so they're they're not going to be looking. I mean, not anytime soon, anyways. Uh, so I mean, there's a few guys out there that maybe uh, I don't know, like a Hackney. I guess he won an AOI, right? So I think he would be eligible. But I I don't think these guys are banking on that because uh, it doesn't sound like it's going to be willy nilly free free for all in the future. I'm not saying they won't ever do a legend exemption, but it doesn't sound like they're gonna hand them out left and right. So my, my guess, and I have no inside information is that you will have to go and fish opens either individual opens or a complete division yeah. in order to utilize that legend exemption. So maybe there's been some unofficial conversations. Maybe there hasn't, I don't know. So it's just weird. Like Hackney is another one who I don't know really well. I've interviewed him a few times, but it seemed like he left bass in a huff, really upset about things. If you remember, he didn't go to that postseason challenge tournament. And apparently he had some personal issues, so I don't know what they were. Sure. But, um, you know, I, I just wonder how things are forgotten, if they're ever forgotten, when, when you come back. It seemed like I was at the Bass meetings last December when Palinik and Swindle announced that they were coming back. Mm -hmm. and I don't know that there weren't any mixed feelings about that, but those guys handled it in a really classy fashion. They came back and they explained why they were back and they asked for forgiveness and they knew – that they might not be up on the front of the homepage all the time, they were okay with that. And I was impressed. I was I was impressed by the way they came back humbly. Yeah, and it just it just appears to be a handful of guys that, and like Hackney and Christie, have just been always guys that seem to get by with fewer bites and catch a bigger quality fish. And I just don't know that that translated for them. I'm not saying that they could never adapt, but I think they maybe found it wasn't all they hoped it to be, and so you just you know that is. I don't know if that stuff happens and all, you know, you, you take a new job, right? Like you find that job wasn't all you thought it would be. And maybe you go back and find uh, something closer to your old job. Right. Or, I mean, things like that happen in all kinds of professions all over. So. I think that's right. I mean, I think I can't blame anyone for trying to feed their family and trying to do what's best for their career. And, and that seems to be what they did. Again, I wasn't on the inside of seeing how the split actually materialized angler to angler, but you go out and you find out uh, clearly BPT's model, to some extent, seems to be working for them. Sure. And it bats. They've brought in and they've made new stars. I mean, we've seen guys that the Patrick Walters, we've seen uh, Scott Canterbury, who was already sort of a star, come in and really brighten that star. We've seen Buddy Gross do the same thing. I mean, it's been good for a lot of people to shake things up. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and it pushed Bass to do some things that made yeah. it better for the anglers. So there, you know, there's a lot of anglers that are benefiting from some of those decisions that other anglers made. And I think there was a little bit of like, once it got to a tipping point of the certain amount of anglers that said they were going, it was like FOMO, right? Like, <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, so because it just seemed like I remember viewing it from sort of a bass centric viewpoint, and you're like, okay, five big guys have left, but there's still Van Dam and there's still Palinik and there's still Iconelli, and, and right. you could just feel that tip becoming unavoidable to the point where there was no coming back. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So Andrew says, watch out for Walters on CT. Yeah. A hometown guy that doesn't deer hunt. <laughs> but uh, so let's, let's start talking about the, uh, the Southern swing. So we have Gunnersville, which we'll cover in detail kind of at the end of this, but so we're, 
basically last day of October, first week of, or sorry, last day of September, first day, week of October, they're going to hit Gunnersville at a time where you, there is some data. So if you want to go look at like some Toyota series championships and some, maybe like some ABH championships and some other fall circuits in that time frame. So there's some, something to be said about that, but they basically go almost back to back to back, right? It's Gunnersville, Santee, Chickamauga, I think three weeks in a row, isn't it? Yeah, back to back to back. They may have like a travel day in there, but they're basically essentially back to back to back. Yeah. Which reminds me, I should probably start drafting some of those ahead of time. <laughs> so I'm not. <laughs> Just tell me your picks uh, today and I'll write them down for you. Yeah. And then there's like a two or three week gap and they go to uh, uh, Lake Fork. So, um, so I think it'd be interesting because we're going to fish basically three very familiar bodies of water at three very unfamiliar times as far as the elite level goes or the pro tour level of any kind. Um, what are your thoughts in general about the Southern swing or what, what do you expect to unfold at a high level or anglers you think are going to make a or just general? I don't know. It's such a weird season because, because I've been watching this so long, I have prejudices in favor of certain guys, the, the Bill Lowe and the John Cruises, and mm -hmm. you see them struggling in the course of a season, and you're like, there's no way a guy like that who's caught him so many times and been to so many classics can continue to struggle forever. But there's momentum in this sport. I mean, you see these guys. Like, I'm looking right now at the top 20. There are only three guys in the top 20 in the AOI standings who've ever been AOI on any tour. That's Clark Wendland, Scott Canterbury, and Brandon Palatick. And, like, there's a bunch of guys who you don't – I'm not going to say you don't think of them as contenders, but these are guys who've caught them every week so far this year. And most of them have caught them so far – caught them every week last year too. So there's sort of that shifting dynamic of who's really hungry and, and who's really on top of their game. And I'm not saying that John Cruz and Bill Owen won't be one and two anymore, but it's tough to get that out of my head. As you've seen in fantasy before, I pick Steve Kennedy all the time because I expect him to win all the time. And again, I'm not saying that Steve Kennedy won't win again. I really hope that he does because I love watching Steve Kennedy fish on TV or on the internet. But, you know, you, there are so many guys near the top of the standings who you have to take very seriously. And yet they're not always at the front of my mind. The, the Drew Bentons, the Buddy Grosses, the David Mullins, guys like that can really catch the snot out of them. But, and especially in the South. And I think those Southern guys are going to have an advantage. Like a Buddy Gross, I think, is primed to do really well. He's in, what, sixth, seventh place, yeah. tenth place in AOI. And, I mean, I would be watching out for him if I was one of those guys at the top of the standings. Yeah, I, I really think, to put it without, like, talking about specific anglers and specific lakes, I think guys that are good with hard baits, so I think a lot of the, the spring and then the summer and the northern swing, as a, it's really down by soft plastics a lot yeah. of rigs and things right like not just as a general rule there's a lot of soft plastics fish caught um i think in the fall we're going to see square bills we're going to see spinner baits we're going to see buzz baits we're going to see top waters uh i think it's the, those guys those power fishermen those grind it out for six eight bites a day anglers definitely are poised to do well at the end of the year so i think you know, I think of a guy like Canterbury. He's fallen a little bit, but I don't. I wouldn't count him out. Uh, a guy like Bill Lowen, uh, some of those guys. So I think to some degree, Pete, this could serve you well 
because I think to some degree your nostalgia might come <laughs> in the fall. Uh, we'll see. Well, like I, I'm inclined to pick Keith Combs a lot, particularly when they go to Fork. But every time I do it, his wife yells at me that I'm a jinx. So yeah. like, that's the other. I don't know if you've run into this in fantasy fishing. Like there are guys you know or guys you pick. And then they do well and it changes your feelings about them or they do poorly and it changes your feelings about them. Or I don't know if you've ever gotten feedback from people like, why did you pick me or why didn't you pick me? I'm not, like, I'm not big time enough like you, Pete. <laughs> well, it's kind of a good thing. Like you tag someone on Facebook and they're like, why did you pick me? Or or the wives, as you know, the elite wives and the wives on any tour are more vicious than the anglers themselves. And I'll get a message saying, you know, why didn't you pick my husband or something like that? And it's kind of brutal. I mean, <laughs> That's one difference. Like if you're picking fantasy baseball or I get fantasy football or one of those, like you're probably at a pretty far removed from the competitors mm -hmm. themselves. But here the sport is small enough that you can actually I mean, there's a pretty good chance that a substantial number of the elite series guys have read your column. Yeah. Looking to see whether you get them. There's a couple guys that I'll go back and forth with, like Austin Felix and De Destin and Mary and every once in a while we'll, we'll back and forth on Instagram or, or Twitter or something like that. But yeah. So, um, so then, like, so, so I think Gunnersville is going to be interesting. It's going to be a lot of grass. We'll come back and make our picks on that. Uh, but like, I think, uh, I think you'll see a little bit of everything. I think you'll see people fishing like super deep ledges, like 25, 30 feet. I think you'll see people fishing in a foot of water with a frog, flipping grass. I think it'll be all over the place. So that'll be interesting. I don't think if we were a month later, I think it would be like, Frogging, like frogging and flipping only, like it would be dominated that. But, um, and then I think we go to Santee Cooper, right, the week after, and you're going to be there to take it all in live. Uh, I don't know. I, I would assume that it's still all about the cypress trees, but must be in a different way or a different zone. I'm not sure. I mean, what are your thoughts? What's that? Okay, now I got you back. Oh, I was going to say, I still think it's going to be about the cypress trees at Santee, but I'm not sure exactly how it's going to differ than the spring, but I assume they're going to set up differently on those cypress. But. I would think so. I mean, I I don't know. It's such a weird time of year in the South. Like, I don't, I don't know what it's like up in Minnesota, but here we're starting to have like some 55 degree mornings and then it gets up to close to 70 during the day. Like October in the South could be 90 degrees or it could be 40 degrees. So they could still be in very late summer patterns and still be out offshore, or they could be on that. I mean, like I know here on most of our lakes, we don't see that traditional fall bite of, you know, bait fish running up the tributaries and bass chasing them. But in those traditional southern reservoirs, they do at some point in the year usually. So I don't know if those guys will be in a, a late summer pattern, a true fall pattern, or even heading in towards a winter pattern. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I really don't know enough about Santee. That's really, I know they, I'm sure they have like team championships and, and little circuits and stuff. There's plenty of local knowledge, but to my knowledge, there's not been, you know, Costas and Toyotas and Opens and stuff like that. Like Chickamauga and Guntersville definitely have some stuff to give you some insight, but I really like, Santee's a really unknown to me. So that'll be a tough one to write an article for. So. I think so. Someone, one of your commenters commented earlier that Patrick Walters is one to look out for. And I was going to say that that's a guy who was on fire last year and is still catching him this year, but hasn't had that breakout moment yet this season. And that might be an opportunity for him to break through. I feel like that could be his moment that like Brandon Cobb had on Hartwell. Yeah. <clears throat> for sure. Absolutely. Uh, 
But I also think he'll come with 60 plus percent ownership in his bucket. So. <laughs> How much do you take into that into account? Like I used to like try to look for lesser owned people. And now sometimes I'm just like, I'm going to go with my pick regardless of ownership. And I don't know if that served me well or if it's, you know, made me crap the bed. Yeah, I, I've taken some of that like really low. And I found that if you try to go all dark horses, you'll get burned. So I really try to mix it up. I try to like, I mean, honestly, I want to pick my very best team, but I don't want to be all chalk and I don't want to all be all dark horses or low percentage. I really try to like balance my team because I don't want my lows. It's, if you bomb, if you get 700 points in an event, Pete, it's really hard to recover. From <laughs> really? Yeah. Are you asking for a friend or, or advising a friend on that? <laughs> yeah, I pretty much cracked the bed up north. I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was COVID related or if I just completely lost my marbles, but I think Jim Sexton and our fantasy bass pundits group did not pick a team and still kicked my ass. Yeah. So, um, but so that's me. I, I, I don't want all chalk, uh, but I don't mind a little bit of chalk, especially when it feels right to me. So I think no matter how far you are behind, I still think you don't like to me, when you start going for all one and 2% anglers, you just tend to keep just nose diving because, because uh, there's a reason that, not all of those guys get picked. If you can sneak one in here and there and make a little move, that's what you do. But to try to like wholesale go all low percentage typically blows up in your face in my experience. That's probably right. I mean, they're favorites for a reason because you expect them to catch it. And once in a while, those guys do crap the bed too. You don't You don't see a lot of guys with, you know, seven team NFL parlays by picking all road. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, or, or right, or, or if you're a horse race, right? You don't trifecta with the, the, the three long shots, right? Yeah, so. With the, the three-legged gray horse. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And then, then we go to Chickamauga, which rescheduled for the third time, right? This is the third time's a charm. I think Buddy Gross is probably just sitting there salivating right now, waiting for yeah. that to come down the pipeline. He has to be the absolute favorite because I, I, I don't know, buddy. I think he might deer hunt a little bit, but I think he fishes predominantly year round. And uh, he's a Tennessee River guy. Chickamauga is his home lake. Uh, if anybody keeps fishing through this fall and time of year, it's going to be him. Um, you know, I think somebody like Mark Menendez probably would have been a good pick if he was still fishing. Obviously, he had to, to take a medical kind of hardship for the rest of the season. Um, trying to think, you know, I know a lot of people love. Uh, John Cox because of his track record on Chickamauga, but I don't know if that will transcend to the fall or not. That'll be one interesting thing to watch because, I mean, some fish should be coming shallow in the fall again, right? especially with the grass they have, which makes you think, well, maybe this would be better for John Cox, but I think it's going to be different, right? So uh, it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. That could be just a seems to every place. Yeah, I mean, it's just he, like, I know, uh, you know, he does, I mean, that's just been, he's almost made a career, like, <laughs> uh, earnings wise on Pickamaga. So I think there'll be a lot of people that will pick John Cox based on history. That might be a place where I try to, like, zig when everybody else zags and try to pick somebody else because I'm just not 100% convinced that he will be the John Cox of the spring and summer in the fall on Chickamauga. That could very well be. One other guy who I, don't, I know I didn't pick, I don't think you picked him either, who's having a surprisingly tough season is Gerald Swindle. Yeah. And with two TVA tournaments there, and I'm he was at the Elites the last time they fished Santee. I'm sure he's been to fourth plenty of times. You wonder if that's a guy who will make a move at this point in the season. Yeah, I think in general, 
Uh, I don't know if it depends on what Bucky's in and who he's up against. I think, but I think in general, you will see Swindle rise in the LI in these last four tournaments. I would expect how much I think. I think he will be competitive. I think his style of junk fishing and and willing to make ten casts with a crankbait and then switch to a cheeky head and then you know or whatever, right? Like I think that style to fish three docks and then go fish a point and then go, you know, hit these three stumps and that kind of stuff, I think will serve him well. Uh, so. I think, I know he has a lot of history on Gunnersville, obviously. I'm pretty sure he does on Chickamauga. If I'm not mistaken, he used to fish the old Jerry Ryan tournaments back in the 80s and 90s, which were essentially in the Carolinas, and they spent a lot of time at Santee. So I'm sure he has a lot of experience there, too. Again, I don't know how much that will help him or hurt him, but I would expect him to have a leg up on making a rise at this point. Yeah, I think Andrew Alexander, I think Lester will be a good player at Chick. That's a, that's a solid pick. So, but my afraid is that like Cox, Lester, and Gross will all be in Buccaneer. <laughs> Buccaneer is always a nightmare to pick. I mean, you're always looking at five guys you want to pick. And you're like, why can't one of them be in C? Why can't one of them be in C? And then you get to E, and it's not that you haven't heard of the guys, but you're like, is that guy still in the elite sometimes? Yeah. Or, you know, did that guy take a medical hardship? Like, I haven't heard his name all year. Yeah, it's just like he's been on a bad run, right? Or yeah, I mean, there's a reason they're in E late in the season. Yeah, I mean, there's not by accident at this point in the season, uh, but I think there is a little more because we only had so few Southern tournaments, and then the Northern Swing. I think there might be a little more diamonds in the rough in E than normal that you can latch onto if you're willing to to think about it, do a little research. I think some of these guys that maybe didn't build up as much equity on their Southern swing before they went North because it was so short. This is their time to make a move. Cause usually when we get down to St. Clair, that's like the last event or the second to last event of the year. So um, it'd be interesting. And, and not only was their Southern swing short early in the year, but one of them was in Florida and, and right. granted it wasn't a Toho or an Okeechobee grass bowl, but it still was a Florida body of water which I don't think of as being in sort of the same category as a Chickamauga or a Santee or a Gunnersville. Yeah. With, with freakishly weird tides and conditions. Yeah. So, yeah. So, all right. And then we got uh, Fork, which I think, I think by all accounts is going to be a good tournament. I think they're going to catch them. And I assume they, they're going to have to follow the catchway release format for that. Uh, so there will be accurate bass track, live leaderboards with precision like we had at Bass Fest last year. So, have you been fished pork? I have, but it's been quite a few years. Like we used to go down there when I was a kid, probably like when I was like twelve to, to sixteen. We went there like almost every year in like March and April. Did you see? It's one of those lakes that I know is great, and I've only fished it twice, and I've been there for a couple of other things, and I've never had that banner day out there yet, where like I saw what it's capable of. So like. I feel like it's a one of the, a world class lake that I have a very negative opinion of because I've never seen how great it can be, and so like yeah. it just feels very finicky to me. And Lee Livesey has had a fairly tough season, so he can move up, but he's not going. to – I mean, he might be between C, D, and E, and he's going to be a favorite. So I yeah. think um, he's going to be very high owned when it comes to Lake Fork by the time we get there. I think so. No, and if you remember the last time they went to Fork, he really struggled. So I'm sure he wants some revenge on that and wants to show that he can catch him on his own lake. I mean, they all want to catch him. It's never a matter of who really wants it. They all really want it. But you know, he has the tools to make it happen. Good deal. 
So anything, I don't know, anything else to touch on uh, Southern swing wise or dynamics? Because it, it pretty much wraps up at Fork and that's where the AOI is crowned, right? There's no AOI championship this year, or is there? Uh -oh. Is it my connection or Pete's connection? I can do. You got me now? Yeah. That was weird. I just blacked out all of a sudden. And you're drinking Dr. Pepper, so that's weird. <laughs> now can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Can you hear me? Yes, now you're good. Yeah, I was gonna say, it's weird to black out when you're drinking Diet Dr. Pepper, but... Exactly. Um, is there an AOI or does it just stop at uh, fork? You know, I think fork is the end. Yeah. I mean, I think I think they run up against the hard deadline of the end of the year, and maybe they have one more open after that, maybe two more opens. Yeah, one of them is I think Lay Lake is the first week of December or something like that. I think that's right. That's just crazy. Like you think of guys who, like I said before, and I don't mean to be a broken record, guys who might come over from FLW or might go back, might have to pay their entry fees before then and sacrifice those. And, I don't, and they don't know what they're selling to sponsors at that point. Am I selling an FLW tour? Am I selling a bath tour? Maybe it doesn't matter to some sponsors, but this is why I'm glad to have a regular job because I could not deal with the uncertainty that those guys deal with. You just keep depositing those enormous fantasy checks. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's the old deal. How do you become a millionaire in the fishing industry? You start with two million. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Sycamore has a question directed at UP. He says, since the southern swing is going to be colder, would you give more weight or credence to the northern fishermen that are used to it? Um, I think everyone's used to fishing in the cold at this point, except maybe the Florida guys. The Florida guys kind of freak out when it gets below 60. But But I think more than that is that there's still occasionally a slight local advantage, but for the most part, guys, you know, you can be from Idaho and you can catch them in Texas. Yeah. The, the good fishermen shine, seem to shine out increasingly all across the board. Whereas it used to be, you had guys who were grass fishermen or smallmouth fishermen now, now. And that's the hard part about fantasy fishing. I think is really, you have to pick, you go to fork and you got to pick uh, Chad Pipkins and who would think to do that? Or you go yeah. north and you got to pick a Taku Ito who's never fished for smallmouth. These guys are just so good at everything. It, it makes it really hard. I think the one thing that we may see a dynamic is that typically in the fall, fish aren't as offshore as much. I'm not saying there's none. They're not as schooled up. It's a little harder to find fish with your electronics, I think, in the fall. Uh, I think it's just a general rule. You have to find your fish by fishing for them, I think, sometimes. So... That'll be interesting to see. I think that's right. Have really, like, made their like leaped and so much shorter with the electronics. But if you can't leverage the electronics the same way you could, like you could on a Kentucky Barkley or Chickamauga in June, that you may be able to in October. So I think that gives a slight advantage to maybe some of the veterans that have been there and done that and seen these fall scenarios a little more often. But we'll see. That's just kind of my gut feel that you might see some of these hot shots with their electronics maybe aren't so hot. Maybe they will be. We'll find out. So, What do you think about that? Did you hear anything after the St. Clair tournament 
about, you know, obviously from guys who did really well, you heard about the Garmin live scope and I, I I've used the live scope, but I don't have it in my own personal boat like that versus 360 versus Panoptic, whatever the Lawrence version is called. Like, do you think that there are guys who now have a distinct advantage over their competitors because they're using one brand or another out there? I mean, I think there is some advantages. Uh, I think the live scope has an advantage when you have like fish you can target separated from the bottom. Um, like on St. Clair, I think is a great example of where live scope and maybe to some degree St. Lawrence where you get separation. They're not necessarily tight to boulders or tight to structure. They kind of move and they roam and you can see the fish, but I don't think it's to the point where like it doesn't take you from Rich Lingren and Pete Robbins. It makes you, does that make sense? Like absolutely. It, it maybe makes you that technology, uh, your top 20 finish maybe turns into a top 10. That's kind of how I see it. Like you don't, it's not, I mean, I still have a, a hummingbird. I mean, I have three hummingbirds on my boat. I have a Helix 10 and a, a 900 series on the dash side by side. And then I have a 900 series on the bow. And I don't know how many guys I beat at Vermilion with 360s and live scopes and photographs. And so, I mean, it doesn't make the angler. It can definitely bump you up a notch, but it doesn't it's not make or break. There's a lot of guys with $10,000 electronics that still suck at fishing. So <laughs> you, you can look at me. I've got two Helix 12s on my boat and, and I love them. But frankly, on the river, I fish less than five feet deep. Most of the time on grass lines, I've been fishing for 25 years. Sure. So I use them as a, a big clock and a GPS for when it's foggy. Yeah. And it's still important. I mean, like mapping, I think is going to be more important than maybe some of the sonar and stuff. Uh, People are going to figure out like they're on secondary points and they're looking for a certain depth and a size flat and like pockets with either sharp breaks or flat breaks, or they're going to get on patterns and they're going to run and they're going to use depth shading and they're going to find those patterns on lights. I think that's going to be a bigger key than just pulling up and seeing fish on your electronics. So. I think that's right. I think also one of the things that always amazes me is these guys go to these lakes and maybe they pre-practice there, but typically in two and a half days, not only do they pattern the fish, but they learn to run them. And as, as one of the commenters said, you're going to see a lot of lower units knocked off at Santee. I mean, there's a lot of standing timber, I think, particularly in the upper lake. And, and sure. same with work. you got to run the boat lanes and like you do at Rayburn or Toledo Bend. And, and I'm always surprised at how quickly they can learn just to get around as well as to find fish. I feel like I would spend a lot of my two and a half days idling, just trying to get back into a particular creek and not break anything. And, and sure. maybe it's business, maybe it's service crews. Yeah, there's a lot of calculated risks out there. Yes, like, I, I remember the first time I fished at Toledo Bend, there's an area called the 1215, which is an old flooded highway, and there's stumps everywhere, and, and skeet came running through. And the guy I was fishing with said, he must know a secondary boat lane, and all of a sudden he plowed right into a stump. You know, it was that, that sort of deal. I think yeah. having a service crew available to you makes people take a lot of risks. Yeah, and I, and I, I don't know how they've been. I know there's been some cutbacks on the service crew early in the season when they were first, you know, coming out of the COVID, I'm guessing they're probably back to pretty full swing, but parts are still hard to come by. So, um, yeah, that's know. true. I, I don't know what the shutdowns were like at the various factories, but I know a friend who in New Hampshire who knocked off his lower unit about a month ago and doesn't know when he's going to be getting a new lower unit. And I'm sure they've got ways of prioritizing some of those for the elite and stuff like that. But um, and I think some of these guys, like if you're big time enough, like, 
I, I bet you a guy like Swindell carries a lower unit for his Mercury in the, in his pickup. <laughs> uh, Clark Ream stayed at my house one time, and he had a lower unit sitting in my driveway at that point. So, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty. Like, I, I'm amazed, but I've never run a Suzuki of bass boat size, but I'm amazed mm -hmm. that Suzuki guys don't have a service crew, and I don't know if their boat crews help them out or if some of the other service crews or if they legitimately just never had the problem. But I, I, I would think they're, I think they're pretty sound, but – it doesn't matter if you have a Cypress tree, right? So, right. Right. <laughs> or rock in particular. And I think they do have some deals. Like, I bet you most of the the Suzuki and Honda guys probably do carry a lower unit. And then they probably contract the, the Mercury or the Yamaha guys to, you know, help them out, you know, type thing. That's probably right. So, so Alexander, uh, Andrew asks, you know, with the, with the Maxent Worm being a dominant player on the northern swing, what do we think? Will be the most prevalent in the fall, and I think if I had to guess across all those tournaments, I think a square bill will be a big player. I think a buzzbait could be pretty good, and I wouldn't count out frogs this fall. You think these tournaments will be one shallow? I mean, we talked earlier about. Do you think like a 5XD could be a player for certain guys, something in that range, or a Carolina rig, or do you think that it's a little too late for that? It could be. I don't. I, I think the majority of the top 10 to 20 are going to be shallow, but I could see some guys winning or one or two angles here and there really standing out. They find a, a unique shell bed or a, a shallow bar or something like that where they do mine it with a, you know, a Series 5 or a, a crit, yeah, something like that. I mean. Definitely. I'd love for one of these tournaments to be one on a true swim bait, like the big old tennis shoe size swim bait. That's something we just haven't seen in a long time. And it would just be a different wrinkle on top of the different wrinkle of having tournaments in the fall to have it one on a bait that's sort of outside that normal five or six things that people use. Yeah, that'd be good to see. Yeah, let's maybe uh, let's maybe dig into uh, to Gunnersville. Sure. Let's talk about fantasy specifically here. Um, so I'm gonna pop this up. So touch myself, a touch under ninety five percent. Wow. So, up, like I think I started like at St. John, like in the low eighties. That just been kind of slowly climb. So this is where you and I strategically. Figure out how we're going to take down Koi. <laughs> we need to get a couple more hurricanes in Texas, I guess. So he needs to do some more roof work. Like loses his internet and then uh... stops working on fantasy teams. No, he's obviously had a great season. You know, he had that one stumble along the way. But other than that, he's been remarkably consistent. He hasn't had any particularly exceptional tournaments, but six or five really good ones. Sure. So about, let's just well, let's pull up Koi's picks, and we'll tell you why Koi's picks are terrible. <laughs> and we'll talk about Pete's and Maya's picks. I think this one is Koi. All right. So Koi says for Gunnersville, frog fishing spectacular. Wow. Bold statement. That would be good. That would be really good. And chocolate. Um, I think it would be awesome to see this. I know a 
lot of the experts are saying it's a little early for the full-blown frog. But uh, we'll see. It'll be awesome. I think it would make for great. You know, I think back to like the tournaments and some of those amazing frog tournaments, and that, that would be awesome to see that, but with you know five to eight pounders. So it's just hard to win with a frog. It seems like particularly for four days. It's a bite that easily gets knocked off, and the way the weather's been so crazy down through the Gulf states, it's not something I would depend on. But again, that's why I'm not out there fishing with them. So, and then right out of the gate, he picks a flipper, not a frogger. So, come on, Coy. Like, let's be real. Um, and he's got Buddy Gross, who's obviously not a frogger. And then he's got Lester, which I think is a solid pick. He obviously knows the Tennessee River very well. I don't consider him a big frogger. No. Matt Heron's more of a flipper. Um, Lowen, I'm sure he can throw a frog, but I don't think that's his. Uh... <laughs> Prince is a Florida guy, so grass guy. And he, got, he did pick Swindle. We talked about Swindle earlier, and, and I think uh, somebody in the chat asked about Swindle. Um, so I do think Swindle is a good pick. Uh, I think if he's going to have a really good tournament, this is one that he definitely could excel at. Um I mean, he basically lives near Gunnersville, uh, spends a lot of time. You see a ton of his, like, YouTube clips and social media clips and stuff are often on Gunnersville. You got Lee Livesey to watch, and then he's got Cruz, and then Alabama's own Bill Weidler. Um, I feel like Bill Weidler is more of a, like, Pusa River guy, not so much yeah. a Tennessee River Alabama guy. So. I think that's right. I mean, he's a guy who, to his credit, he won. A lot of guys with much more storied careers. Locked up again. Pete, come back. So while well, Pete seems to be locked up here, but uh, yeah, so Sycamore, what dates? Yeah, it's like uh, September 30th through October 3rd. Um, I, I actually don't think Koi's picks are bad. But he writes the article to talk about frog guys, and I don't think uh, he put any frog guys in his team. So that's interesting. I feel like Pete's got to come back before we. Uh... All right, Pete disconnected. So hopefully Pete pops back. Um, I don't know. <clears throat> So we'll, uh, we'll wait till Pete gets back. We'll jump into his picks and then talk about my picks, and we'll kind of go back and forth. But um, I think Fighter could be really good. Uh, he is uh, shown to be back. Someone did not like my picks. Our power went out for a second. Oh, nice. <laughs> now? now we're back. I don't know who I pissed off, but I pissed off someone along the way. Uh, what about Ed Lauren? Yeah, I can. I mean, you just, we I talked about guys that had experience, and Ed is kind of the old guard. Of I mean, he's he's not a young gun by any means. So I think he's a guy that potentially has seen it all. Uh, so you know, I mean, if you're looking for somebody that's a little bit off the radar, I think, uh, and he probably has a personal. I mean, you guys are both uh, barristers, right? 
both attorneys. I've known Ed in various capacities for about 40 years, off and on. Uh, we went to rival high schools and didn't know each other at the time, but then we sort of ran into each other every 10 years. And Ed's a catcher. I mean, even when he fished the Opens back in the 90s, his thing was just he always caught a limit and it was always a decent limit. He wasn't necessarily a big fish guy, but he seems to have figured something out this year. And if you look at him at Fork last year, he had a really good second day at Fork. So I expect Ed to catch him along the way. I seem to remember he fished Santee back in the day and did pretty well the year that he almost made what was then the top 100s. So I would not rule against him. He wants it. I mean, I know I say this all the time. He wants it bad. And that seems like, as I say it, it seems really stupid because they all want it really bad. But I I think Ed is wise enough, smart enough, and talented enough that he's going to get it done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you mentioned that. I think Ed could be a sneaky good pick on uh, Santee for sure. I'm trying to remember where he finished there back in the 90s, but there was a year where he had, back when the Opens used to be like 300 anglers, he had like three 20th place finishes, and one of them was definitely at Santee. It was back, he made the the Red Man All-American a couple times back then too and came very close. And I I believe the story that he told me was that Clark Wendland beat him out, and had Clark not beat him out, Ed was going to go pro full-time, and then he didn't have the money to do so. Interesting. Yeah, he finished, I was 47th at Santee. Not as good as I thought, but that was 1994. That was before a whole bunch of these guys were born or before they were out of diapers. Yeah. And those cypress trees are still pretty much in the same spots. So I would think so. And those boat lanes. And, you know, I was talking, I, I don't know how well you know OT Fears, but old school Bass Pro. And yeah. he's been a friend of mine for like 25 years. And he set what was then the weight record at Santee in 1994, I think it was, or 95. He had about 35 pounds in one day and 77 for three days. And one thing I didn't think of was that back then the live wells were a lot smaller. He told me the story of he had a co-angler having to take his five, seven pounders and basically stuff them into the live well and cram them in. And he wasn't sure that there was any water left in there beyond that and was shocked that they made it back alive. Now things are much different, particularly with a marshal or no one else in the boat. You have two live wells and the live wells themselves are much bigger. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of co-anglers, there was like a, uh, a Toyota series type tournament on Santee maybe five years ago where a co-angler actually won with like as much or more weight than the pro or something. There was some kind of weird stat and he had like one day he only had three fish, but it was like three fish for like 28 pounds or something. Santee Cooper. They live there. Um, yeah. You know, like, like you said earlier, if it was a springtime tournament, I'm sure we would see a couple 10-pounders and a couple of 30-pound-plus bags. I don't think we'll see a whole bunch of that, but there's no reason it couldn't happen. I think we've got a good chance of seeing at least one 10. I hope so. I, I, I remember I fished as a co-angler at the, the famous Falcon tournament in 2008, and I remember Trip Weldon saying about halfway through way in the first day, that if your big fish is not over 10 pounds, don't bother weighing it in. I'm like, man, this is that. <laughs> and you're like, but I caught my personal best. Can I weigh it? <laughs> I did. I caught the second day, no, the third day fishing with Marty Stone. I caught what was then my personal best in 812. And like, I had never seen a fish with an eyeball that big come out of yeah. the water. And I was like, not only is this happening to me, but it's happening in a tournament. And like, for a lot of those guys, that was just another fish. I mean, everyone I fished with that week caught at least one nine pounder. 
Yeah. And like for some guys, that would have been their small fish that day. Yeah, absolutely. I what did Scroggins have the last day? 44 or something. So he averaged close to nine pounds. Yeah. Yeah. So Shadow says the, the because you didn't pick any of the Canadians and they pulled your internet. So <laughs> it's a war against us from Canada. I, you know, those Johnston brothers, you look at what Corey, what they both did up north. I mean, they both fished really, really well. They had a win and I think a total of five top tens. Um, and Corey came from out of nowhere. Now he's in 13th place in Angler of the Year. That That's pretty amazing. And, and those are guys who, you know, we had the question earlier about Northerners doing well. Those are guys who have so much tour level experience. They do well wherever they go, whether it's Florida, mm-hmm. North, or in between. What's up, Connor? Yeah, that, yeah, I agree, Sycamore. We'll see. I think it's going to be all over the place. It'll be some shallow, some deep. Um, so, yeah, there'll definitely be some eight pounders at Santee for sure. <clears throat> I think I think that's a guarantee. So let's uh, dive into Pete's picks. Sure. So this could either be where Pete shines because of his experience and nostalgia, and it finally comes through. Or this is where you do the opposite. What do you think, Pete? You know, but I, I'm hoping that I come through. I, I don't know that I have a chance to overtake you and Coy at this point, but I sort of need some bragging rights as the year ends and maybe have a couple really good individual targets. Maybe I can hang my hat on the article. So it's kind of maybe just give us the what, what the gist of it without reading it, like balancing savvy and sentiment. What's your what's your angle for Gunnersville? I mean, these guys have so much history there, recent history. Clun has 40 years of history there. He won a classic over 40 years ago at Gunnersville. So all these guys sort of either have had past success there or have an ax to grind with the lake, and that's sort of the sentiment side of thing. The savvy side of thing is to what extent does sentiment not matter and you just pick someone because they're really fishing well or likely to fish really well. And I sort of vacillated between the two on each pick, and I think I came out with 301 and two of the other. Let's 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 uh, jump down here. So you're going savvy in uh, in A. A. I'm going with Scott Canterbury, who you know I, I've known about Scott Canterbury for a long time. I remember covering an open at St. Clair, probably around 2010, 2011, and he was in the top ten. And I knew who he was even back then. And he's had obviously a lot of cups, a lot of close chances at FLW. But he's someone who the move to Bass, he really came into his own, not just with the AOI, but with the incredible consistency. And, you know, Gunnersville is not far from where he lives. I, I just expect him, after falling a little bit in the standings, to come right back up and make a run for that second AOI. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I know he likes Gunnersville. He Obviously, if you look at his, like, late FLW, Forestwood Cup, he excels in those summer, late summer, early fall tournaments. Um, and I think – we haven't really talked about this angle, but there's a lot of guys that really wanted to do well on Gunnersville in the classic. And, yes. you know, this is a chance to kind of like, maybe not hundred percent redemption, but get a little redemption uh, and show that they're, you know, they know how to catch them on, uh, on Gunnersville. And I think probably the first time ever, whether I think I mentioned my article that you probably have an elite level tournament the same year as there was an event, the classic. Right. So I think that's right. As far as I can remember. Yeah. Um, and you're right. That's a huge deal. I mean, Canterbury finished 46th in the classic and, you know, they always say, I don't care if I finish last or second, as long as, 
you know, it's first or nothing, but you also have to know that that's sort of a blemish on their record. And I think most of these guys are proud enough that they don't want to have that blemish. They don't want any questioning about their abilities, particularly on their home waters. And I, I think, I think Scott is a very driven angler. I think he's a very confident angler and I don't, he, he has so much experience. I don't see him making dumb moves or being totally off track. He might not catch him, but he's not going to practice foolishly. Absolutely. Um, and you got Paul Mueller as your backup. I think that's a decent pick. Um, his, yeah, he, Paul is kind of, he's a, he's a, he's guy that always is a guy that threat to do well, especially on a lake like Gunnersville where their potential is offshore fish and electronics and, he obviously showed last June that you know, he can do it and he had one good day. But Paul Mueller has a little bit of that. He's a hard guy sometimes to pick in fantasy because uh, he can do really well and sometimes he can kind of have a little bit of a clunker. And this year he's obviously doing very well. Um, but he's an interesting, interesting, interesting player in fantasy because uh, uh, it's gone both ways for me picking Paul Mueller. Yeah, I've picked him a lot on Northern tournaments, you know, three or four years ago and gotten crushed by it when I really expected him to do well in his wheelhouse. And and it's hard to get over those things. Sometimes when you get an opinion of a guy is not, he's not strong for fantasy purposes or he doesn't perform when he's supposed to sort of your emotion outweighs your intellect. And I mean, here's a guy who's won two elite series tournaments in the past two years. Clearly he knows to catch him. And I know he does a lot of, he does a lot of fishing on his home lake of Candlewood in Connecticut in the fall that I think is going to translate very well to the Southern tournaments, finding those mid range fish on grass edges, finding them on offshore structure. And I think he's going to do well, but I just like that Canterbury pick a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually like Paul Mueller a lot. I actually fished the national championship on the uh, Watchtower river where he punched his ticket to the elite when he won that event. So. Very cool. So bucket B, you're going back to sentiment. Matt Heron is one of those guys who, you know, Matt has a TTBC win. He has, I believe, an FLW win on Dardanelle. But he doesn't have that career-defining win at Bass. And it, it feels like he's a guy who's always in the hunt for AOI, for the Classic, and for winning a tournament. And I feel like he's due. I mean, he's in his 50s, I believe. He's due to have that sort of signature career win at some point. He's been close enough. And again, kind of like Canterbury, he's a guy who particularly in Alabama is going to fish smart. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. If there's a good grass open bite, I think he's going to be a strong pick uh, for sure. Yeah, and he fishes a jig a lot. He fishes a, a variety of jigs very well. And I think that always gives you an opportunity to catch a big bag. Yeah, and then Lester is obviously always a contender on the TVA, it seems like, so. Yeah. I mean, Lester is another guy who kind of along the same lines as Heron doesn't have that signature elite win yet. I mean, he's a guy who makes the classic basically every year. He's a guy who's always in contention, always a favorite to do well. And no one's going to be surprised when he does win, but he hasn't won it yet. And I think it's going to happen sooner or later, but I just feel like for this one, I have a better feeling about Heron. Yeah. I really thought at the beginning of the year, I might even mentioned it. one of my early ones, I thought Lester was really going to be in the hunt for the AOI. And not that he's out of it, but I thought he was going to be a stronger contender throughout the season, AOI. And he still had a good year, but I thought he was going to be right up there. So, Yeah, I mean, he's a guy who no one's – no one who follows the sport closely is going to be surprised when he wins multiple tournaments and when he wins an AOI or a Classic. And it doesn't matter where it is. It could be on the TVA. It could be at St. Clair. It could be in California. 
he just does enough things really well and really methodically that that he's a, a solid angler wherever you go. So you got back-to-back sentiment, BNC. BNC. See, I go with Zaldane. And Zaldane, you know, he had that near miss at Gunnersville last year where he was literally like a minute or a cast away from having the winning catch or potentially he had the fish on his line to win it and just things didn't go his way. He had all those second-place finishes and near misses last year, and you expected him to roll – or I expected him to roll that into 2020, and maybe maybe it's because of the Amazon series, maybe it's because of the pandemic, but he's a guy who, at least if the season were only to have one more tournament, he's in danger of not making the Classic. He's only four or five spots inside the cut. He needs to catch him, and this just seems like another one where he has the history and – it would be sweet to see him catch them on that big spoon. I don't know if that's a bite in October there or not, but see him do that and win this time and, and catch a hundred pounds. It would be a very cool win. I think a lot of fans of the sport would be very happy for Chris. Yeah. I, I, I definitely on a personal level root for Chris. I don't know that I love him as a fantasy pick, not saying that he definitely has the potential. I know there was a Toyota series championship in which, uh, Jockamson did really well for one day of glide bait. <laughs> so we'll nice. get plays it all uh, in, in next week. So it, it, the glide bait, the spoon, the frog, all of those things are just tough to keep going for four days. It feels like. Absolutely. And you got Brandon Card, who's kind of a Tennessee guy. Uh, I would say a bit of an offshore specialist as your backup. And uh, he needs to have a good tournament to get back in the in contention, right? Yeah, he's one spot behind Zaldane in 37th in AOI. And he's a guy who can catch him when it's tough, I feel like. Whereas Zaldane is someone who, if it's a 100-pound tournament, has a chance to win. I feel like if a tornado goes through the night before and the fish are off and they get a rare October snowstorm, Brandon Card could shake his head or throw a Neko rig or something like that and win with 60 pounds. Yeah. Brandon Card's got a little bit of that. We used to joke about Bill Lowen, right? Like, Yeah. If you need 10, I'll get you 12. If I need 20, I'll get you 12. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they show up for the same catch no matter what, and that's exactly right. And that's yeah. that's why they, neither of them has that signature win yet, but it'll happen at some point. They just need to go to the Sabine or Cherokee or someplace like that when it's off. Yeah. Although Lowen has showed a little bit of that, at least up north, to be able to hang in some of those those more wide-open tournaments. So that's interesting. Uh, so, Bucky B, you're going savvy, and you're going with the Golden Ram. Golden Ram, and he's a, a guy who's outside of his normal comfort zone. He's in 52nd in AOI, and he's a guy I've watched a lot. He always makes the classic. He's in potentially in position not to do so this year. Um, he's a guy who does a lot of things well. I remember watching him at the classic in Knoxville and thinking this guy's a shaky header and a drop shotter and watching him throw a giant glide bait and some square bills and things like that. And, and being in contention through the second day. Um, he does a lot of things very well, and he's quiet, and he keeps to himself, and he's a tough interview. I'll say that, and that, that's where I'm sort of misguided sometimes by my own personal biases. I, I, there are guys, not that I don't want them to do well, but because they haven't explained their strategy in depth to me, I'm not fully aware of how they think about things, and I'm less likely to pick them. And historically, I think that might have been the case with him. But, but I just realized he's too good a fisherman to keep on the bench. And you got uh, Hank Cherry as your backup. 
you think you, you just just mine the Browns Creek Bridge and just? Uh, I, I, if I were him, I'd sit there. Um, I don't know. It would be sweet to see Hank win twice, particularly, you know, it would have been nice to see him win twice on Gunnersville or twice anywhere in the same year to start with. But then after having that miserable COVID experience at St. Clair, the guy kind of deserves a break. I mean, that's, that's just a terrible situation. Granted, he has the automatic classic berth to go back next year, sure. but no one wants to miss an event. Everyone wants to qualify on their own merit again. Absolutely. <coughs> Interesting picks. I can see the angles on both of those. Um, yeah, Cliff's a guy that in the past, he was a guy that I would like ride all season, but you just haven't been able to do that this year. So that's uncharacteristically off year for Clifford Perch. I mean, everyone has him. The Van Dam eventually missed a classic. Keith Combs missed a classic. Lowen missed a classic at some point. I mean, the competition is tough, and you can be 90% of the time on it and still not make the classic just by making a few wrong moves here or there. So you know, these guys are too good to struggle all the time. Sometimes they just get a little off their rotation. Yeah. And Bucket E, you're going with the sentiment of all sentimental picks. It is. I mean, that's the ultimate. I was, you asked earlier in our conversation tonight about me going to media events. And I, I try to go to maybe like one a year. And a few years ago, there was one at a, at a plantation in South Georgia that had a bunch of private lakes on it. And I had the choice to fly into either Jacksonville or Tallahassee. And I don't remember why I chose Jacksonville, but I did. And my flight happened to be coming in the day that Clun, day four of the first tournament, he won at the St. John's. So I was like, man, I don't need to be in Georgia till tonight. I'm just going to drive down to Palatka and go to the weigh-in. And like seeing Skeet carry up Clun's bag to the weigh-in and seeing all the guys who had hung around until day four, you kind of realize how much this guy means to the sport in a way I never realized before, even though I knew all of his accomplishments. And I mean, he's 74 years old. I, I know no one has had wins 44 years apart and certainly not on the same lake. So to see him win at Gunnersville would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, you know, obviously this is a little bit of a swing for the sentiment, but also a little bit, I guess needs a fairly low percentage. It's a little bit of a, a swing for the fence, but I definitely think your backup John Cruz is the safer pick. Uh, for Buckety. Yeah, I spent a lot of time watching John in general and in particular at the Classic this March. He was fishing an area that a lot of other competitors, including Brandon Lester, were. We saw them fishing some of the same stuff. I just think John is a very workmanlike angler. I don't mean that as a criticism. I actually mean that as the ultimate compliment. Like he treats it like a job. He goes there and he does what he thinks is right. And he knows what he's doing. And I think he's going to do that. He's fished enough in the fall over the years on Southern Commons to know, to know that he's in a pickle of some sort in terms of making the classic, but that he's definitely not out of it. And with two good finishes, he's right back up there. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Yeah, I agree, Sycamore. I think this is probably – I mean, I think – the person that wins the AOI is doing something special this year. And it, I mean, they're winning the AOI is always a huge challenge, but I think with all the rescheduling and the shakeups and the different schedule, I think the person that uh, the angler that wins the AOI has done just a little extra this year, I think in my book. I think that's right. And I think, as we said at the beginning of the conversation, the fact that they're going to four familiar bodies of water at totally new times adds that, extra little element beyond the COVID, beyond the rescheduling, beyond not being able to hunt as much as they want this fall. 
like like you said, it's a lot of things piled on top of each other, and the guy who wins it, as always, is going to deserve it, but maybe especially more this year. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so let's pull up my picks. <laughs> I, there's a, I wrote the article. I'm trying to remember who I even picked. This will be like uh, – <laughs> So I think grass specialists are going to be important, whether it's deeper grass or shallow grass. I think for me, that's where I kind of focused at least a little bit. Um, I think I highlighted my article that this is probably the first time there's been an elite event or a two-level event in a classic in the same year on the same body of water. Um, so to me, uh, doesn't. I think he's he's probably going to figure out a way to catch them, maybe not necessarily, but offshore. Um, and he, he's just a, a monster on the Tennessee River, and he's used to fishing Chickamauga and the Tennessee River in the fall. Um, so I, I just, as much as I'd like to have all froggers and flippers on my tournament roster, I think he's he's really hard to overlook in Bucket A. I think that's right. I mean, he's another one of those guys like we talked about who's not going to do anything stupid. He's not going to run 80 miles up the river on the lark to throw a shaky head on one log. Yeah, absolutely. He's going to... He's going to have a solid game plan, and it may not be, it may not come to fruition, but uh, he's going to have a very thought out, calculated plan, and he's going to put himself, if the, his fish bite, he'll be in a position to win. I think that's um, And then my backup plan aligns with your pick of Scott Canterbury. Um, I think he's looking for redemption after the classic, and I see uh, a jig and a buzz bait and uh, making some noise going into the southern swing. So. So this is where I'm kind of veering off of where you and Coy, uh, for me, bucket B, I like Welcher. Um, and I think Welcher, like most guys, there's a lot of guys that like made up ground in the Northern Swing. I think Welcher did a good job surviving the Northern Swing because he's never really had to fish the Northern Swing. And I think now that we're coming back south in the fall, late summer, I think that's where he did a lot of his success and that's how he made the FLW and how he qualified for the elites was fishing coasts and opens late in the year. So I think this is really, while he doesn't have a ton of Gunnersville experience, I think in general, this Southern swing is going to be very good for him. He likes to frog. He likes to flip. He likes to fish shallow. Um, I think he's going to be a really strong angler to watch. And I think he'll make some noise this week. I think that's one of the best points you've made tonight. The idea of survival. I mean, everyone talks about how you want to win every time you're out there and swing for the fences and all of that stuff. But realistically, you have to know there are certain tournaments. You just have to come away with a reasonable number of points. And like you said, he got through what was expected to be his toughest stretch. And there are other guys who need to do the same this fall and need to make sure that they don't fall out of the classic by not not getting the points that they need to get and knowing when it's time to fish for 12 pounds instead of 20. And I I figure I think he's like in the 20s in the OI, so he's, you know – comfortably in at this point as long as he catches them. Uh, right. I think, you know, this really, he is looking to like make a move now. So I think like where a lot of people, um, there's going to be a flip, there's going to be some flip flops in the standings. And I think uh, Kyle is looking at his chops coming into the Southern swing. And then I've got John Cox as my backup. Um, obviously as good as the mullet was for him, uh, mullies on both tours, uh, I think it should carry him enough to be a solid pick regardless and he's not bad around shallow grass so i think that's right I, i'm working on the mullet myself too i've had pretty much a crew cut since i was 12 years old 
but I'm not getting a complete haircut until I have to actually go back to the office, which may not be until the spring. So yeah, I, actually, um, I, I had my hair coming out the top of my visor. And now I let my doctor <laughs> go wild to Clippers. So I've got, I kind of got like that Skeet Reese, uh, Louisiana classic look going right now. It's a good look. Um, yeah. So C also going frog, uh, <laughs> Uh, and just shallow river, shallow grass. So that obviously, Kernersville is a river system. Uh, Kufal is the guy that I fished against, Caleb Kufal, uh, up on the Mississippi River a lot when I used to fish the BFLs. And he was an animal. And he just he, he went back to back AOIs. He's really good. I think uh, he showed what he could do on Ufala on that type. And I think this may not be wildly different than Ufala was uh, in that early summer. Um, so I, I think uh, a little bit off the radar, but I'm looking to to, to make a little noise with uh, some of these kind of picks that aren't on people's radars. So I love getting that little bit of northern insight. Like when you hear from someone, you know, because oftentimes you'll hear from guys who fished BFLs against someone. Oh, he wasn't that good. He may have won two AOIs, but he's not that good. To hear that you know how good the guy is and what his strengths are is a very valuable piece of information. Yeah. And then if you want something a little more safe, I think Bill Lowen, he's, uh, he's going to – he'll get his five fish a day. And I think he'll do very well in the Southern swing in general. So I think Bill Lowen could be a safe bet in just about every one of these fisheries. If you just want to get good solid points for your bucket. I think that's right. Bill's had a tough year, but Bill's a guy who he catches that those 12 or 14 pounds or whatever it is every day. And you can imagine, like you said, in your column, he's going to be up in mud Creek throwing a square bill or a swim jig or something like that. And maybe a little finesse spinner bait or yeah. a game hog and he's going to catch it. Yeah. And I think that'll be true the whole way. Like maybe until fork, then you might have to catch him, catch him. But um, I think he'll, he'll he, he's another angler that is, is poised to thrive at the end of the year. I think that's right. Caleb Sumrall, I have in bucket D. Uh, he's a Louisiana guy. Uh, he's He did well in that June tournament that Hartman won, uh, fishing that, I don't know, that pennywort or whatever that weird floating grass is that's in the back a lot of uh, Gunnersville, uh, flipping that. Um, I imagine he's going to find something, whether it's frogging or flipping or throwing a spinnerbait. I think uh, this time of year on Gunnersville, will he'll feel very much at home. I guess I love your picks, not necessarily because I know, think or know that they're great picks, but Summerall and Kufal and Welcher and Logan, like that excites me to see that new blood coming in and getting noticed for their accomplishments, getting noticed for their talents. And to see all of that is, is I think, really good for the future of the sport. I see that now that I like looking at my picks and what I said earlier, we should rely on veterans that I've kind of thrown that <laughs> out the window. <laughs> well, you've got a couple of them there. You got a couple of the right ones. It looks like. Yeah. And then I got West Logan as my backup. He's a young guy uh, from Alabama. He's more of a Coosa river guy, but coming into the elite series, he had cash like <clears throat> something absurd, like eight out of 10 checks and opens or something like, cause he won the central open points last year. And so, obviously, if you can win the points in the Central Open, you know how to catch them in grinder tournaments. So, um, I look for him to be uh, somebody that's going to make up some ground. And and I, I, I'm pretty sure that he thought he was going to have a much more successful year and wouldn't find himself in bucket D. And I, he's he's a guy that I think is poised to make some noise uh, in these next three tournaments. I think that's right. I think that's very much right. And then Cruz, I just, I don't, I can't see, I mean, he's had a tough year uh, and you probably know him better than I do. I just, 
I can't see him having that many bad tournaments in a row. So now I've said that about Kennedy in years past, and it's been, <laughs> but uh, we'll see. I think the cruise missile is is on the rise. So and Kennedy's a different case there. You know, I've gone down on that Kennedy train several times, and I've lived and died with it. He's just too far to the extreme. So he'll have a second place and then he'll have an 80th. Whereas Cruz's finishes, even when they're bad for him, they tend to be a little bit more towards the middle of the pack. Yeah. And, and uh, there's something about Steve. What makes him a dangerous fantasy pick makes him dangerous on the water, right? He's got that kind of whimsical, go lucky, feel kind of like, obviously he wants to catch him, but he doesn't let him eat him up. You know, he's a very family guy. He wants to go up there and have fun when he's fishing and that makes him dangerous, but it also makes him dangerous to pick in fantasy, I think. <laughs> I think that's right. Kevin Short once told me that the most, I don't know if annoying is the right word, or most emasculating thing is, like, you're out there at 9 o'clock practicing, and you drive by the campground, and there's Steve's boat still covered up, and then he goes on to kick your ass in the tournament. <laughs> it's just picking up, having breakfast. Yeah. He's playing with playing Disney games with the kids. I mean, it's just the way he does things, and it seems to work for him, but uh, it does bite him in the butt once in a while, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And then my backup plan, if you're looking for somebody that's a dark horse, I mentioned earlier that Carl had some good luck on a glide bait in a, in a fall tournament on Gunnersville. It's kind of was kind of his coming out party. Uh, at a, like a, I think back then it was the Everstart or, it's just the, or whatever it was, Costas. And uh, so if you're looking for somebody that uh, – Figuratively swing for the fences and fancy fishing. He might be a guy at a low percentage that uh, could could play, but he's not a safe pick by any means. I think that's right, and he proved he can win last year. You know, which is a big deal. He didn't win it on the glider, but he won a tournament. And he's a guy who's good for you know a couple of top tens every year. And whether it's on the jig or whether it's on the glider, there's no reason to think that he can't do it, particularly at a lake that he's been to several times. And so, there's kind of my team in a nutshell. Um, I've got some definitely some low ownerships and some high ownership. I kind of talked about that. I've kind of mixed it up. So like my A and my E are kind of chalk and my B, C, and D are kind of moderate percentage picks. And then tiebreaker, I don't know what you're thinking, but I'm thinking low 17 pound. That 18 pound a day I think will be really strong on Gunnersville. So I think that, that sounds right. Right at about 70 pounds, maybe a little more, a little more, depending on if the weather and conditions favor them. Yeah, absolutely. So you know what? Neither of us, the person neither of us mentioned is Taku Ito, who I yeah. know we could have a whole podcast on that topic. But like, here's a guy who's in second. He went up and had three great tournaments on smallmouths, which he's never fished for, and and now we kind of forgot about him in the course of a couple of weeks, or at least we found other people who we felt were more likely picks. Yeah, it's it's hard to pick against him, honestly. But like, he's just he doesn't have that track record. But that he's a great, and he's probably still pretty low percentage. So if you're a fantasy player that's 70-80%, maybe you missed a couple tournaments and you're just trying to, like, win one, taking a flyer on Taco Ito is uh, – I mean, because he qualified out of the Centrals, I think. So I think right. clearly can – I mean, he was just behind, you know, uh, Wes Logan uh, and Bob Downey and some of those guys that made it. So um, – so yeah, if he can do it there, he can do it anywhere. So it'll be interesting to see. It's exciting. It's I, I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to it. Like it's going to be hard for those three weeks to get much work done with whether it's live or ESPN on the background, just bass track flying, social media going crazy. It's going to be a fun time of year at a time when we normally don't have a lot of fishing going on. 
Johnsons and Mercer made Mass Afraid of Canadians. <laughs> so I guess you can't play fishing when you're not in the United States. <clears throat> Is that a thing? I don't know. Can you just make up a fake address? Shadow, if you play and you win, you can just give them my address and I'll forward it to you. <laughs> After I take out a few things. <clears throat> um, but yeah, I think that's, uh, I'm excited. I, I think there's some, we have some good, uh, some good parallels on some of the picks between the three of us, and there's uh, some differences. So I think there's a lot for the fans to chew on if they want to make some of that their own and, and add it in their own. So, Yeah, and one great thing about the fantasy aspect of these tournaments is you're going to see guys who catch 13 pounds one day and come in with 26 the next day or vice versa and make a huge leap yeah. or a huge fall. So you're never really out of it. Yeah, it'll be – you could be – Everybody in the top 20 one day, and then your team could go to crap, and then or, or vice versa. It'll be like, yeah, it'll be it'll be a big deal getting your anglers into day three, because uh, yeah. once you get there, then you'll be good. But so Pete, we kind of made our picks. Uh, so I know you're involved with uh, anglers in a little bit. Like what? Uh, what can you tell us? Like what, what am I missing out on? You get down there all the time. Tell us about some really cool big bass stuff to like end the night. Um, well, I go usually twice a year to Mexico. My wife took me for my 40th birthday in 2009. We were like, this is our once in a lifetime trip. And since 2013, we've been going at least twice a year. We're going back in November. It's going to be our first trip out of the country since February. Um, and it's just, you know, the fishing is great. You can go and you can catch a hundred bass a day and they can average three or four pounds. And you're going to be, you're going to be within a cast length of a 10 pounder at some point during the day. But it's also after all these trips, it's really just a sense of like, I completely exhale when I walk through the gates. Someone sure. hands you a margarita or a Pacifico. You never touch a bag. Everything is done for you. And it's hard for the hardcore tournament guys. I've been down there with Ish and Brent Ayler and Pete Glusek and guys like that, like for them to slow down on the water enough to really enjoy it. But when you really get back into that mode of, man, I'm in an incredible place and it's probably the best public fishery I'm ever going to be on. It's just, I, I don't like even my wife who had never really fished before she met me. Like she walks in, she exhales and says, I am home now. Like it's our second family. And most of the staff has been there 20 years. Anything you want is done for you. It's a fantastic time. We'd love, we brought a group down from Wisconsin last year in January. And that's another thing you can leave Wisconsin or Minnesota January at 6 a.m. and be drinking a margarita and catching an eight pounder that afternoon. And, and that's just a really nice deal. And what is the club? Where do you fly into for? You fly into Mazatlan. Okay. Um, there are direct flights from Phoenix, Dallas, Los Angeles, and a few days a week, I believe Delta has or Sun Country has one out of Minneapolis as well. So it's a really inexpensive flight. Uh, I will say it costs a little bit more to go there than it costs to go to Okeechobee. But on a per eight pounder basis, it costs much less. I mean, I, I I expect to go there and I don't know that I'm going to catch a nine or a 10 on every trip, but I'm going to catch a number of sevens and eights on every trip. And I can't do that here in Virginia. I mean, it's just, sure. and, and on top of that, like, like I said, I'm a river rat. I fish six feet deep or less all the time. Like I love to go down there and throw a 10 XD all day. That's my favorite thing to do is to get on a school of fish and just crush them on that thing. Nice. And then, like, all the gears down there, like, you just show up with your, your yep. and your shorts. and uh... You bring your own reels. You okay. should bring – they will sell you a tackle package, but I bring my own gear at this point. Um, they have St. Croix and Abu Garcia rods, which are available free to use. The boats are there. The guides – most of the guides 
lived there before the lake was impounded. So you'll be fishing a, a roadbed and they're like, oh yeah, this is where I lived when I was a kid. Or this is where I went to school. They know it better than, and they have Humminbird electronics down there, but they know it pretty damn well without the electronics. The, the food is exceptional. Question we always get is about the safety. Um, I feel a hundred percent safe. My brother, who's not a fisherman has been to 80 countries and he came down with us a couple years ago and he said he would bring his nine-year-old kid there. He said that was yeah. not an issue. Um, happy to talk to anyone about that. My wife and I have a website devoted to fishing travel. It's www.halfpastfirstcast. And we have an El Salto and Picachos page on there, which I think lays out most of the details. But people can always email us at fishmore at halfpastfirstcast. Or, and we're happy to call you back. We're happy to converse via email and sort of lay, lay things out. We also do Amazon trips and Alaska trips. That's our passion now that we don't tournament fish is traveling around the world to chase all kinds of fish. And the, and the whole, did I get that right on the URL? Is that right? Half past forecast. You got it right. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you. And you were telling me earlier that the whole thing about that is like, it's, it's not for the rich and famous. Like anybody can do this stuff is what you're saying. I really thought that when I was a guy, you know, I had a nice bass boat, but I really thought to go to Mexico, that was a once in a lifetime trip when I was in my 20s. And at that point, I was not financially capable of going. But as I got into my 40s, it's not that unreasonable. And that's sort of the theme of our site is we have fished for tiger fish in Africa. We've been to Brazil a couple of times. We've been to Alaska. And if you obviously there are ways to do it with five star service and private jets and all of that, that's we have the five star service without the private jet. Uh-huh. Uh, the average regular guy can go on great fishing trips. And that might be your dream fishing trip might be Clear Lake. It might be Gunnersville. It might be the Maldive Islands for Giant Trevally. But uh, as someone who really loves to travel and loves to catch different species of fish, it's become important to me to expose other people to that. Yeah, that's cool. And so what, what, what kind of boats do you fish out of down there? And Angler's Inn is on El Salto, right? Angler's Inn is El Salto and Picachos. Picachos is the newer lake, which is about, I think it was dammed in 2009. And uh, actually, my wife caught her biggest fish there. She caught a 912 there. But for the most part, it's not as known for big fish as it's known for catching 100 or 200 a day. Pretty much any way you want to catch them. And you're fishing Um, out of like aluminum fishing boats down there? or they They had special boats built by Triton and then later by Bass Pro Shops that are 19-foot aluminums with a real, the guide is on the back with the trolling motor and my wife and I, we fish off the front deck together the whole time and we never get in each other's way. It's just a really big wide deck boat, very stable. And there's a lot of stuff to hit down there. A lot of timber at any lake level, the lake fluctuates about 40 feet in the course of the year. So you go in January and it's at a hundred percent you go back in May and the areas that you fished are 200 yards up on the bank, but the boats are very good for that. They, the guides don't hesitate to take you where the fish are and they're, they're all very knowledgeable. That's cool. And then, uh, so you said some of the like serious guys, they can't like turn it down. Have you seen any guys that like, can't like give up control to the guides or what is your experience? Absolutely. Pete Glues that kept telling me, he's like, man, I just kept reaching for the trolling motor with my foot or I wanted to do different things. But like I watched some videos, uh, Palinik and Brandon Cobb were down there with Mossy Oak and they fished with one of the guides we fished with yesterday. We, we fished with regularly. And the guide told me, he said they were just totally chill and relaxed. And like, I can't wait to go after watching. I have some of those flutter spoons and I've never fished them because it's just not a player where I live. And I'm going to take them down. Palinik got on a killer bite with them. He said the only reason he didn't catch more and bigger fish was because they only had five and six inch spoons. 
So I have a pile of those magnums ready to go back in November. And I'm pretty excited. Like it's the ultimate playground. If you want to learn to catch them a particular way, I, I've caught them there on a chatterbait. I've caught them there flipping. I've, I hate to Carolina rig. My wife loves to Carolina rig. It almost broke up our marriage, but um, <laughs> we can go down there and do that. You can throw a 10 XD. There's just, for someone like me who tends to fish the same ways over and over at home, it's a great opportunity to go down and do some different things. It's like fishing up where I live, where there's tons of fish biting, but they're just five times the size. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you guys are spoiled up in the north, too. As someone who's fished at Leech and Minnetonka and a bunch of those Wisconsin lakes, you guys have a lot of fish and a lot of those northern strain three to five pound fish that are pretty brutal and they, they right. bite hard. That's cool. So... Do you ever do any like filming or anything when you're down there or you just go down and enjoy it? Like you ever record any of your stuff for like your own personal memories or. Yeah, we have a bunch of GoPro footage that we haven't done anything with and that I really need to get the time to do it with. I mean, we have thousands of pictures and, you know, family members who don't fish say, is that you with the same fish every year? Why do you go back every year? And I, I'm not a guy who likes to go to the same place two or three times, but for some reason that place has just become sort of my go-to. It's my happy place. I'm relaxed when I'm there. and. I'm going to take advantage of it as long as I can. We are doing, we went to Guatemala in February and fished for billfish. We're going to go back and do that in February if it's open. And the trip we have coming up in April is to Panama, which is topwater poppers for big tuna. And I think if if it's as good as I expect it to be, the bass cat may be going up for sale. I, I don't think that'll ever happen, but you know, you go and fish for like redfish in Venice and you're like, man, why do I fish for bass? These fish fight harder and they eat the same things. And I don't think I'll ever get bass fishing, but I, I have learned that I like a lot of different things. Sure. What is, uh, what's the, I assume you've been down there at different times. What, what do you think? Like if somebody was going to go down, what, what would you say is the best time or your favorite times or? Um, I really like that May, June bite. And I, that's a hard one to convince people to go to because Fishing around the country is pretty good in May and June. People always say that's where it's best at home, so I don't go there. I like it because the lake is 30 or 40 feet down, and the fish are really bunched off on traditional textbook offshore structure. You can catch them with a football jig or a swim bait or that 10XD that I like so much. I, I really like this fall time to go catch them on a topwater. Uh, we went down Halloween four or five years ago, and it was the first time I'd ever fished the Whopper Plopper, and I'm pretty sure none of the fish there had seen it before. And it was like peacock bass quality strikes. So I'm, I'm hoping that that same bite will be on in a couple of weeks when we're down there. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I always struggle, like, because my wife and I, we travel to Mexico a little bit for vacations, not fishing related. But I don't like leaving Minnesota May through September. Right. Like, I want to leave here when it's frozen, tundra, 20 below, and then I like to look at Facebook and look at all my friends that can't start their cars and they're shoveling the driveways and stuff. That's more satisfying for me to go where it's warm, but it's really brutal here. So Yeah. And, and, you know, people always ask me what's the best time of year to catch a real big one down there. And I think everyone has their own opinions on that. I, I think, to be honest, it's kind of random. I mean, I've caught really big fish in December. I've caught them in February. I've caught them in May. And there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason. I think I seem to catch more in that sort of four to seven pound range in May and June, but not always. We had probably the best numbers trip I've ever had this past January. And there were a lot of four to nine pound fish mixed in. It was mostly on a jerk bait. It was really cool. Like in places where they'd normally eat a Rico or a plopper, they were just eating the jerk bait that much better. So we stuck with that and we, we crushed them. I say that's like, like this. And then all of a sudden your arm gets yeah. ripped. 
<laughs> it was pretty cool. Like, you know, you would think they would eat a cigarette butt or just anything, but like they get picky. Like my wife was throwing a slender pointer and I was throwing that vision 110, which is what I normally throw. And she was definitely getting bit better than I was on that slender pointer. And some, we had some guys from Wisconsin in our group and they were getting bit better on that slender pointer too. So there are little things that do make a difference that you can dial in. And I think that helps the tournament fishermen to realize even, you know, if you go to lacrosse or you go to Minnetonka and you're catching three pounders, someone else is catching three and a quarter or three and a half pounders. Right. Absolutely. <clears throat> I'm to sleep now, Pete. I'm all jacked up thinking about Mexico bass. I might. Hey, as, as long as you're on, if I can make one more plug. Yeah. We have the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame. I'm a board member of the Hall of Fame. Right. We have our annual, our induction ceremony, unfortunately, was canceled due to COVID. But we have a bigger auction than ever going on right now. You can get through it, get to it through BassFishingHOF.com. And I've already been outbid on all the things. The thing I really wanted was a trip to Jimmy Houston's ranch. And it quickly got way out of my price range. But there are jerseys available, trips with all sorts of pros, Kevin Van Dam coaching experience, Greg Hackney coaching experience. It, it's a pretty amazing deal. And there's still some bargains to be had. And you can win a trip to go fishing with Pangrack, bowling with Jeffries, uh, Mark Jeffries, and be on the show. <laughs> you know what though? Like there, was, apparently, there's some dude who really wants it because I think it's up to like eleven or twelve hundred dollars right now. Yeah. How much is it to be on your show? Uh, you'll get an invoice. Don't worry about it. <laughs> One trip to El Salto. Yeah, done. You said it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a good auction. It's for a good cause. We've given out four conservation grants already this year, and we're hoping to give out some more grants to deserving bass fishing related groups. Yeah, it's awesome. And that's all tied. Like when when you guys can have the ceremony, it's at the Worlds of Wonders or right down in. Spring. Yeah, which, which is amazing. It's been the past two years. Worlds of Wonder. Uh, Johnny Morris has been very generous to the hall. He gave us a substantial space in the museum that is still a work in progress, but it, it's pretty cool to go see it. And the aquarium itself for anyone who's not been there is just absolutely amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure, Pete. I think we've, uh, I haven't seen any questions roll in a while. I think we've answered. I think people are just like in shell shock after listening about your Mexico. They're probably, they're, I think everybody left and they went to uh, half past first cast.com and they're not watching anymore. So. Well, I hope they go after we're done. Um, but please, anyone who's interested, reach out to us. It is our favorite topic to talk about by far. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure, Pete. I'm sure we'll do it again. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, as always, if you guys are new to the channel, uh, make sure you subscribe. You know, uh, like and comment on the replay. As usual, there will be a – if you missed this, there will be a replay tomorrow. I also put it in podcast form for anybody that likes to mow their lawn or walk their dog and listen to fantasy fishing and, and, and fishing in general. So those links will all be down there. As always, here to help you catch more bass and stuff less at Fantasy Fishing. Catch you guys later. Thanks, Rich. As always, thanks to all of you that hung in till the end of this podcast. This has been another episode of Hella Bass Bass Fishing Podcast Experience. Please consider sharing this with any of your bass and buddies and friends. This is the best way for podcasts to grow is through word of mouth. Also, don't forget to search Hella Bass on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, or just about anywhere else so that we can connect in more ways. As always, here to help you catch more bass and suck less.